and welcome to Talking About Tumors with Ryan and Ryan. This is Ryan Holson. And this is Ryan Quinn. And today we're going to move on with our upper GI malignancies into cholangiocarcinoma, which like pancreatic cancer is a very difficult tumor to treat with some limited options. However, over the last few years, we've been developing more and more molecular targeted agents. Before we begin, I just want to mention that we are in the month of July, and I know this has been a busy month for everyone We're in at least Canada and the United States as the new fellows and residents join at your programs. Once things start to settle down, we would ask that if you've found this to be helpful, to please recommend it to all the new trainees who are interested in medical oncology. Thank you. Yeah, we really appreciate it, and good luck to all the new fellows out there. It's a steep learning curve, but definitely a great career. So cholangiocarcinomas are sort of a heterogeneous group of tumors, um, relatively rare and no carcinomas, and typically aggressive, especially in the mass sac setting. Historically, these have been looked at as being many different diseases and were broken down into gallbladder, intrahepatic, and extrahepatic. However, more recently, at least in the mass sac, saying these are typically approached similarly. However, it's important to keep in mind that based on the origin, there may be different staging classification, different surgical options, um, especially some unique details about the gallbladder, which we'll talk about next week. So looking into epidemiology for gallbladder carcinoma, it's very common in Hispanic women. Actually, in Chile, gallbladder cancer is more common than breast cancer. Uh, it's also seen in obesity, smoking, patients with gallbladder disease such as cholelithiasis, chronic inflammation of the gallbladder, which can be caused by infections and in, um, not typically in the U.S., but in other countries. Porcelain gallbladder, if you remember from internal medicine, can increase your risk for gallbladder cancer, which is why we typically do a prophylactic cholecystectomy for those patients, as well as patients with gallbladder polyps greater than one centimeter. For cholangiocarcinoma, the classic risk factor is primary sclerosing cholangitis, or PSC. This gives you about a 10 to 15% lifetime risk of getting cholangiocarcinoma. So there's specific screening instructions for those patients. Also, similar to gallbladder cancer, people with intrinsic problems in the biliary ducts like cholelithiasis, cysts, cholelithiasis, hepatolithiasis. In developing countries, liver fluke can be associated with cholangiocarcinoma, hepatitis B and C, and in the United States and other industrial nations, diabetes, obesity, smoking, alcohol are all risk factors. And although many of these risk factors are well understood, their exact association is not that strong and there's no significant screening protocols in place looking for these tumors, without the exception of possibly with primary sclerosis and cholangitis. Usually these will present as an obstructive symptom such as a painless jaundice, not unlike pancreatic cancer. You may have patients present with right upper quadrant plate pain, especially if the tumor is pressing against the hepatic capsule. Patients may present if the disease is more advanced with weakness, fatigue, weight loss, the typical metastatic cancer symptoms. In later stages of the disease, this can progress into fulminant hepatic failure or even portal hypertension, which can lead to increased weight, especially if ascites is forming. And just as a personal anecdote, I did have a patient who had been losing weight during his initial diagnosis. We started chemotherapy and did get a response. His weight started to improve. I had He, he then followed up in clinic and had gained about a 10-pound weight over the course of a month. And initially, I was optimistic, thinking this was signs of ongoing response. However, the following visit, there was clear signs of um, ascites, which became very difficult to treat. So certainly a symptom to keep an eye out for if you have a patient who has sudden weight gain and hepatic disease. 
When you have somebody that you suspect of having gallbladder cancer, cholangiocarcinoma, many of these patients will have already had a MRCP or sometimes it's found incidentally on an ERCP when you do biopsies. For these patients, you want to make sure in terms of staging that you get a CT chest abdomen pelvis with contrast if able. There's really no role for PET scans unless you have a liver lesion or something that you're concerned about. These diseases tend to metastasize to the liver, just given the close proximity. Peritoneal disease is common, as well as you can also get lung metastasis. Those are the most common sites of metastatic disease. You can send off a CEA and CA199, which sometimes will be elevated in these tumors. Keep in mind, CA199 can be elevated with biliary ductal obstruction, so... You will need to ensure that it remains high even after the ductal obstruction is resolved. You can also send AFP if you have a solitary liver lesion, just to make sure that you're not missing a hepatocellular carcinoma. Yeah, I think that's an important point to note. Those are going to be a major thing on the differential, especially with the solitary or multiple lesions within the liver. So when we do make our diagnosis and obtain a biopsy, once again, these are going to be adenocarcinomas. They're going to be CK7 positive, CK20 negative, much like the rest of the upper GI malignancies. And actually, often can be difficult to dis- decide which the primary tumor is. And certainly, with, with your biopsy, you're going to use that AFP stain in addition to the AFP serology, arginase, and HEPPAR1. If the, the, these can sometimes be positive in a hepatocellular carcinoma, but should not be positive in a cholangiocarcinoma. These may, pre- as these may present as an adenocarcinoma of unknown primary, you're going to want to follow up with an upper GI um, endoscopy if you don't have a definite tumor. And occasionally I've seen where patients have their diagnosis made during multidisciplinary tumor board where the radiologist would ultimately take a look at the liver and determine one of the lesions looking very concerning for a primary tumor within the liver, which can help um, determine whether this is a cholangiocarcinoma or an upper, another upper GI adenocarcinoma which will matter because our systemic therapy is different for these tumors and the other diseases that we've spoken about. As we said, these diseases are very difficult to treat and are often very symptomatic. So it's important to get your palliative care colleagues on board early. You know, people have a lot of pain, nausea, vomiting, and it can be difficult to make it through the treatment with all of these symptoms. So again, always a good idea, never a bad idea to get palliative care on board. Another consideration early on, especially as these can present with obstructive symptoms, is whether or not to place intrahepatic stents or have a biliary drain in place. This can be a little bit trickier than um, with pancreatic cancer, as the chemotherapies or the chemotherapies we're going to use sometimes can be um, dose adjusted um, with an element of elevated bilirubin. Often it's a debate whether or not to treat and see if we get a response because placing these stents can be sources for infection later on. And often with cholangiocarcinomas, there's going to be many points of obstruction. You may need multiple stents in order to alleviate this. So one of the landmark trials looking at treatment of metastatic disease is the ABCO2 trial. Prior to this, similar to pancreatic cancer, gemcitabine was considered standard and was often used as monotherapy. The ABCO2 study was looking at the addition of cisplatin to gemcitabine. So it was a phase three trial looking at gemcitabine alone versus gemcitabine plus cisplatin. And this was given as gemcitabine and cisplatin, gemcitabine 1,000 milligrams per meter squared and cisplatin 25 milligrams per meter squared given on days one and eight of a 21-day cycle, so two weeks on in a row and then one week break. This trial did include gallbladder carcinoma, cholangiocarcinoma, and uh, ampullary cancer. 
There was an overall survival benefit seen with the addition of cisplatin. The overall survival was 11.7 months in the gemcitabine cisplatin arm versus 8.1 months in the gemcitabine alone arm. The toxicities were actually fairly similar between the two groups. There was increased neutropenia when you add cisplatin, but really no actual increase in infections or neutropenic fever. There was also increase in transaminitis with the addition of cisplatin. As, as with uh, metastatic pancreatic cancer, still a very um, poor outcome, even with our best chemotherapy available to us. In that two years out, there was less than 20% of patients alive in either arm for this trial. Our friend Fulfurinox has actually been compared against this agent in a phase 2 th- um, slash 3 trial and was unable to show an improvement in, in P- either PFS or OS. And to date, this still remains the, the best first-line trial that we have available. There's also been some other phase two trials showing other gemcitabine combinations such as gemcitabine and oxaliplatin as being potential options. However, these have not been compared to gemcitabine and cisplatin. I think if your patient doesn't have any any contraindications to use gem and cis, this should be your preferred go-to. Yeah, so I've seen Gemox use gemcitabine oxaliplatin, especially in patients that have ascites where you're concerned about cisplatin and the amount of fluid that you have to give, or patients with kidney disease who you know would be a contraindication to cisplatin. Gemcitabine oxaliplatin has been studied, and there is you know decent data on using that in the first line setting. However, it is less preferred because, as we'll get to in the second line setting, full fox. Is usually our go-to second line, and if you already use gemcitabine oxaliplatin in the frontline setting, you know you potentially lose that option in the second line. Definitely could be something to consider when choosing a frontline regimen. So talking about adding to gemcitabine cisplatin, there has been recent interest, like with other cancers, on immunotherapy in metastatic disease. So this brings us to the Topaz-1 study, which was looking at metastatic or locally advanced unresectable biliary tract cancers. And this was looking at the addition of gervalumab, which is a pdl one inhibitor, to our backbone of cisplatin gemcitabine. So it's cisplatin, gemcitabine, gervalumab versus just cisplatin and gemcitabine. And the cisplatin gemcitabine was given in the same schedule as in the ABC2 trial. The gervalumab was given every three weeks. And after the cisplatin gemcitabine was stopped after eight cycles, the gevalumab was continued until progression. This study recruited patients regardless of the baseline PDL1 status and also regardless of the MSI high status, which as we know can be markers of if patients will respond to immunotherapy. There was a small survival benefit. The overall survival was 12.8 months in the group with gervalumab versus 11.5 months in the chemotherapy alone group. There was also a higher overall response rate with 26% versus 18%. And when we look at the long-term benefit, the amount of patients who were alive at two years was 25% in the trivalumab group versus only 10% in a chemotherapy alone group. I don't think we've gotten into this yet, but there is this concept of the the tail of the curve is the term that's used to discuss some of these long-term outcomes we can see with immune therapies. This has certainly been shown in melanoma and to a lesser extent in, in lung cancer, as well as in certain populations of patients with other solid tumors, which is to say that unlike chemotherapy, where you have a predictable benefit with an average increase in overall survival, an average increase of progression-free survival, but invariably tumors will often become resistant and overcome the chemotherapy you're giving. With immune therapy, sometimes we can see these very sustained long-term survivals, and we'll see that as years go on, especially in the melanoma data, the percentage of people alive remains consistent and looks like they're having a long-term response. This leads to a flattening of the Kaplan-Meier curve, hence the tail of the curve term. So as in, in this trial, there was that is often paid attention to, and there does seem to be more people persistently alive at two years, but this data is immature. It was published as part of an interim analysis. Another 
issue with the study is that it did not provide the MSI status in about 50% of patients. And as we'll get to later, MSI is a very strong predictor of benefit of immune therapy. Yeah, I think the problem with this is that we don't necessarily know who's going to benefit from the Javelimab, and the study doesn't really help us figure that out. You know, there might be a benefit for a small proportion of patients in the long term, but right now there's not really great biomarkers to see who's going to benefit, or at least it hasn't been reported yet. They also used a PDL1 scoring system, which is different than what has been used in other studies and what we commonly use for at least GI cancers, where we're used to the CPS, the combined positivity score. And in lung, lung and thoracic malignancies, we're used to the TPS, which is the tumor positivity score. This study used something called the TAP, which is the tumor area positivity. And they considered positive anything with a tumor area positivity of 1% or higher. So given that this is a different scoring system than most places commonly use, it's something also to take in consideration. And I think before this becomes mainstream and standard of care, we're going to have to come up with a more unified way of measuring this. Yeah, I agree. And furthermore, it was also published in a lesser known newer journal, um, NEJM Evidence, so not the main New England journal, but an offshoot of the family. And I think when looking at the whole picture, we have you know a marginal benefit of maybe a month of overall survival and limitations on our understanding of the patient selection and the biomarkers missing for more than half the patients. Um, we'll certainly be waiting for either more mature data or um, additional studies looking at immune therapy in this setting. I don't think it's yet to be FDA approved in the United States. Yeah, I don't think as of when we're recording this on July 17th, 2022, it's been officially approved yet, although I think it was up for expedited review. That being said, this is, as we've mentioned, this is a disease with a very short survival. So anything that's you know showing that we might be able to push that out a bit further um, is optimistic, and especially um, in properly selected patients who may get those long-term tail-of-the-curve responses that we're always looking for in our advanced disease. So moving into the second line, uh, I like some of the other cancers where often biomarkers are driving your first line selection. In this case, many of the biomarkers that we get on our next generation sequencing are going to play a role in our second line options. To date, there's only one positive phase three trial in this setting, which is going to be with systemic chemotherapy, which we'll get to in a minute. However, the biomarkers that we're going to really be looking out for are going to be our MSI high status, FGFR, IDH1 with other markers remaining investigational or with emerging evidence, such as HER2, EGFR, and BRAF. As far as the MSI high status, there are a few umbrella trials that have looked at this, which use multiple tumor sites with MSI high status. In the case of cholangiocarcinoma patients within the study, they did find that there's approximately a 40% objective response rate. Um, these patients only make up to about 3 to 5% of the total patients in this with this disease. However, at least from my personal experience, the two patients I have seen with metastatic cholangiocarcinoma did have very good um, responses and, and prolonged response, which is not something we are frequently seeing in this disease. I don't know if you've ever seen anyone with MSI high and cholangiocarcinoma. I've seen it in the localized setting where we use immunotherapy. I haven't yet used it for metastatic disease. Other biomarkers for immune therapy sensitivity, such as tumor mutation burden, have been looked at. However, there's a bit less certainty of the value of this. Um, there, the umbrella trial that looked at immune therapy, tumor mutation burden, typically used a cutoff of 10 mutations per megabase. More recent data, especially some out of Memorial Sloan Kettering, have found that different tumor locations have various TMBs that should be used as the cutoff for benefit, and 
at least per their analysis for cholangiocarcinoma, this should be greater than 10. pdl one has not yet shown a great sensitivity marker for this tumor. Another biomarker that's that we look at for these diseases is FGFR2. And there are now two drugs that are approved for patients with FGFR2 fusions or rearrangements, pemigatinib and infogratinib. Pemigatinib was studied in the FIGHT trial, which was a phase two trial in patients with previously treated cholangiocarcinoma. And it looked at the addition of pemigatinib, 13.5 milligrams for two weeks on and one week off. The primary endpoint was overall response rate, which was increased in patients with FGFR2 fusions or rearrangements. It was 36% versus essentially 0% in patients without the FGFR2 fusion or rearrangement. It was a single-arm trial, so there was no control group. All patients received pemigatinib. There was no placebo arm. So again, you have to take this with a grain of salt when you're interpreting this data. About 10 to 20% of patients with cholangiocarcinoma have this mutation in place. So there was a decent duration of response, 7.5 months, in the patients that had FGFR mutations. Talking about toxicities, they had hypophosphatemia in about 60% of patients. Other things that can be bothersome to patients are arthralgias, dry eye, stomatitis, abdominal pain, fatigue. Another toxicity that's relatively rare but certainly can be a high-yield one to come across is the risk of retinal detachment. This occurred in about 4% of people in this trial, so uncommon and mostly low-grade. But if any patient presents to clinic with having complaint of floaters behind their eyes, they should immediately stop the drug and present to an ophthalmologist in the short term. There was actually a pretty significant overall survival, 21 months in patients treated with pemigatinib that had FGFR2 fusions or rearrangements. And this was in comparison to four months in patients that had no mutations. They also looked at a group of patients that had other mutations in FGFR2, or other mutations in FGFR, and those patients had a 6.7 month overall survival. So there seems to be something to be said about the FGFR2. Again, since it was not a placebo-controlled study, we don't know, maybe just FGFR2 patients have less aggressive disease, or maybe it is, you know, all the pemigatinib. There was also a similar trial looking at infogratinib, which we won't get into all the details, but Fairly similar, so you do have those two options for patients that have FGFR2 mutations. And then the last biomarker to look for when you're sending your next-generation sequencing is IDH1. This has an approval for ivocidinib, which is an IDH1 inhibitor. IDH1 mutations can be seen in about 25% of cholangiocarcinomas, more common in intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas as with FGFR2. The intrahepatic ones are the ones that more commonly have these mutations. About 3% of patients have IDH2 mutations. But ivocidinib, again, IDH1 inhibitor, this was looked at in a phase 3 trial of 187 patients with previously treated cholangiocarcinoma. Very modest overall survival benefit, 2.7 months. Or sorry, this is progression-free survival benefit, 2.7 months versus 1.9 months. The overall survival benefit was 10.3 months versus 7.5 months. This was placebo-controlled, sorry. Yeah. So we, along with I'm sure many people you've heard from, always make kind of a comment on whether or not this is a phase two or phase three trial. And understandably, phase three trials are larger, and often we put a lot more weight into their findings. Fortunately, with some of these rare diseases, we're a bit limited in our data. But I just wanted to briefly go over, there is some data in cancer clinical trials showing how likely a phase two study is going to be a phase two positive in the phase three setting. And there's many meta-analyses out there to um, find. At least one meta-analysis I found of drugs that were positive in their phase two trial that were then moved into the phase three with similar comparisons found approximately 
on average about a 10% less objective response rate. And of those that were positive in the first um, in the phase two trial, only about a third ended up being positive in the phase three trial. When we're dealing with an aggressive disease and limited options, we'll still make use of the best data that we can, but we certainly remain hopeful to get more and more data and better comparisons to be able to provide the best quality of care to our patients. The one phase three trial that we have in the second line setting is the ABC06 study. And this is looking at modified full FOX versus palliative care only or observation alone, support, best supportive care alone, as they call it, for second-line treatment after patients have gotten cisplatin gemcitabine. This was 162 patients. The majority of them were cholangiocarcinoma, 117, versus 34 patients with gallbladder carcinoma and 11 patients with ampullary carcinoma. There was, again, a modest overall survival benefit, 6.2 months versus 5.3 months. These patients were all ECOG 0 to 1, and the toxicities were not unexpected. Fatigue, neutropenia, looking at grade 3, 4 toxicities, things like neutropenia, infection, and fatigue were seen in more patients in the modified Fulvox arm than the best supportive care arm. So again, only about a 0.9 month overall survival benefit, but if you have a patient with a good performance status who has progress on cisplatin gemcitabine. This is probably, if they don't have any um, targetable rearrangement that we just spoke about, this is probably the best option that we have, or at least the best data that we have in the second line setting. Moving forward, this should be our gold standard that any new drugs that's getting approved should be compared against. So bottom line is you have someone who's a candidate for chemotherapy, you know, good performance status, um, loop in your uh, palliative care, nutritional support, manage any localized symptoms as needed. Currently, the standard first line would be cisplatin and gemcitabine with second line directed based upon biomarkers. And in the absence of biomarkers, the best option available being full FOX chemotherapy. And if someone does have a biomarker available, consider enrolling them on a clinical trial or making use of some of the phase two um, approved drugs that we have in our arsenal, such as pemigatinib and infogratinib, ivacidinib. And then you can always consider the MSI status the addition of immunotherapy, and probably more data to come from the Topaz 1 trial, looking at the addition of Dervalumab in the first-line setting. Yeah, I can definitely see this potentially having a role, certainly for our MSI high patients, and hopefully we'll develop some better biomarkers so we can select more patients to benefit from the immune therapy agents. So next episode, we'll be moving into localized cholangiocarcinoma, which, as with localized pancreatic cancer, has a lot of a lot of options such as radiation, chemotherapy, and surgery, and sometimes difficulties deciding on the best approach. We'll then move into some uh, rectal cancer and anal cancer before moving, switching gears and moving into breast cancer. Thank everyone who's been listening so far. And once again, please reach out to us if you have any questions or comments or suggestions as we move forward with this. Yeah, take care, enjoy the summer, and good luck to all the new first-year fellows out there. For more information, follow us on Twitter at TalkingTumors, or feel free to email us at TalkingAboutTumors at gmail.com. Please rate and review the podcast. We really appreciate it. And special shout out to our friend John Kim for all of his musical talents. And he is the composer of the music that you're hearing right now. Talking About Tumors is not medical advice. For medical advice, please contact your own healthcare provider. Opinions stated on this podcast are by the Ryan who said it and no one else. We have no financial disclosures, and this is done purely on our own time to the sake of our enjoyment of the field of medical oncology. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.